I'm Frederick Gerten, and I'm the filmmaker. <laughs> and I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. And this is what, Leilani? <laughs> this is our summer series. It's our summer series. Of Pushback Talks. Of, that's our podcast. It is. It is, yeah. So enjoy the music and enter into the summer. But Leilani, we've been doing a lot of different podcasts over a year now, and it all started when the pandemic hit us and we had to stop traveling we started to let's keep talking about these issues and very much of the the story in push is a lot about the effect of the financial crisis in 2008 which kind of created this kind of global landlord and suddenly we we found a, a a very good book coming out in the us and with a very interesting writer can you present to us Aaron Glantz? Absolutely. Yeah. So Aaron Glantz, an investigative journalist, wrote a book called Home Wreckers with a longer title that's really good and I can't remember. Uh, and Home Wreckers is a very detailed look at what happened uh, during and after the financial crisis, but not just what happened with the big actors, the big financial actors, but what happened on a personal and individual level to some of the families in the United States. And he tracks one family in particular. So we had the the pleasure of interviewing Aaron many episodes ago. Um, but he's got a real in-depth look at this. And also how some people in some close circles become extremely rich. Uh, because of the how the Obama administration decided to handle the the, the financial crisis, uh, be aware this is is recorded before uh, the U.S. election. So when Aaron is talking, it's still uh, Trump as the president, which now feels like it's a long, long time ago, but it's actually it's not. So, but enjoy listening to Aaron Glantz. Welcome to Pushback Talks, Aaron Glantz. It's good to be with you. So you're here because you are a, an, an award-winning writer, investigative journalist, and you have a book called Home Wreckers, and it's out on Harper's, and it's a very important story. It's quite linked also to the story in Push. And I, I, I love this, uh, the quotes from the book. So if you don't mind, I will read about this, how Home records, how a gang of Wall Street kingpins, hedge fund magnates, crooked banks, and vulture capitalists suckered millions out of their homes and demolished the American dream. I'm glad you like reading it. That's <laughs> fine. You know, but it's, you know, with, with, with Leilani, when we've been out with, with Push, we always sometimes we introduce it like a scary movie. Absolutely. It is scary. And you capture that, Aaron, with your gang of Wall Street kingpins. I love it. Also, you know, if you look at the cover of the book, it was really important uh, to myself and to my editor, the publisher, that this seemed fun. You know, the, the conditions that we face in the world are not fun at all. Uh, we are facing uh, you know, tremendous transfer of wealth from uh, millions of people to a, a 
handful of wealthy interests connected to President Trump, and you profile some of these large private equity firms like Blackstone uh, in your film. But the characters, the profiteers, and the way they go about it, it is just a rich crime story. And we wanted to we wanted to communicate to people that if they go pick up the book, uh, that it's not going to be some kind of uh, boring political treatise, that they're actually going to get into the lives and understand who's pulling off this heist, right? I mean, your film is about people being pushed out. And, and the book that I wrote is very much about the heist, about who are the people who are taking it and how did they do it. Extremely important that we keep t talking about this because... You know, when we were in San Francisco, actually showing Push at this amazing uh, theater, what was the name? The Castro. The Castro. Yeah. the Castro. It was like such an amazing, and a young woman came up to me after the film and said, wow, I feel less lonely now when I've seen the film. Because I, she thought that everything that happened, all her difficulties was her own fault. But now she could see that her unfortunate life was a part of the global story. And I think your book is doing exactly the same job for people. So we have to understand it's not our fault that we are under all this stress. It's actually somebody else who, who rigged the system. Well, and here in California, we have a very active debate about whether or not we have enough housing. Do we have enough housing? The real estate interests really want to build, build, build. And one thing that uh, my book, uh, is focused on, and your film as well, is pointing out that it's not only about whether or not we have enough housing, it's also who owns the housing and what are they doing with it. So if you have a large company uh, like Blackstone that uh, buys up 70, 80,000 homes all across America, um, and then fixes the rents at very high levels, and people don't have a chance to own their home, uh, then uh, then people feel squeezed. And it doesn't matter uh, if the housing is available, if all their money is going to this large private equity firm. New, beautiful skyscrapers going up that are dark at night. And then if you go look at the property record, they're all owned by this limited liability company, that liability company. They're not even owned by people. And so I think what both of us are trying to do in our different ways is kind of move away a little bit from the question of are we building enough and move over to who's controlling this most important asset, our homes. Absolutely. And, and that global conversation has to change. Still, everywhere I go, even housing advocates are always talking, oh, we don't have enough supply. We don't have enough supply. It's like, are you sh I'm always saying, are you sure? Because I'm pretty sure there's a lot of supply out there. It's that it's being built for investors, it's investor driven, and existing supply is being eaten up by investors. So that whole narrative has to change. We and, and your book is hugely important in changing that conversation. And I think push the film is as well. Yeah, we had a huge conversation, Frederick, just like uh, a few years ago here in the States after the housing bust with everyone saying we had too much housing, right? And now we're being told we don't have enough housing. Um, and 
and so instead of looking at that question, let's you know take a really hard look at our system of finance. You know, who is financing people to buy housing, and uh, or if not people, corporations to buy housing, and then what are they doing with it after they acquire it? Let's listen to a little clip from Push, where we uh, have the the Nobel laureate uh, professor of uh, economics at Columbia, Joseph Stiglitz. Let's listen to him. A company like Blackstone or any of the big financial enterprises were the big winners in the crisis. Uh, they were the big winners in the housing market. Uh, they were also the big winners in the equity markets. It was as if the U.S. government, rather than helping the homeowners who were losing their homes, actually sided with the banks encouraged foreclosures to clean up the books, gave the money to the hedge funds and, and private equity firms, who then bought the, the distressed assets to make money. So it is the way that the 2008 crisis has played an important role in increasing wealth inequality in the United States and in other countries that have been inflicted by the crisis. What Professor Stiglitz describes uh, is that at every step of the way during this crisis, starting under President Bush and continuing under President Obama, every time the government had an opportunity to side with either the homeowners or Wall Street interests, it sided with Wall Street interests. I mean, somebody needed to feel pain. There was economic pain, and that economic pain needed to be assessed. And so every time that pain was assessed on the homeowner uh, to the benefit of Wall Street. For example, I write in the book about Steve Mnuchin, who is now Donald Trump's Treasury Secretary. Back then, he was a hedge fund guy based out of New York. And when there was a big bank failure here in California by this bank called IndyMac that made all these terrible mortgages that you've heard so much about, and there was a run on the bank with people pushing and shoving out uh, in 90-degree heat trying to pull their money out of this bank, and the bank failed, the government turned to Mnuchin, and they gave him the bank, him and his investors. Uh, they gave paid him the, the bank? He paid nothing. <laughs> They were so eager to get this failed bank off their books. Like the government ended up owning the bank. The government didn't want to own the bank. So they were so eager to gave it off the, get it off the books. They just gave it to Mnuchin. Uh, he and his investors, which included George Soros uh, and Michael Dell, the founder of Dell Computer and others, uh, they agreed to put $1.6 billion in the bank but he paid the government nothing. So it's rather like you had a junk car that you were so eager to get rid of that you just like gave it to somebody. And then they spent their own money fixing the car. Uh, but in this case, it's even worse than that because we agreed, we were so eager to get rid of this bank, we agreed to subsidize Steve Mnuchin's losses. So when he would foreclose on people, and this bank foreclosed on over 100,000 families, including uh, about 30,000 senior citizens. We actually paid his costs. We paid his uh, attorney's fees, foreclosure costs, inspection costs. And in cases where Mnuchin couldn't get as much money selling the property uh, as as he would take a loss on the foreclosure, we heavily subsidized his losses on the loan itself. And we end up paying him and his group uh, about a billion dollars uh, as he for 
as he forecloses on all these people. Well, I mean, it's it's mind-boggling. And I, of course, go immediately to, so who was overseeing Mnuchin, his bank, and the foreclosures? Like, was there anyone regulating and saying, hey, maybe you could actually try to keep those people in their homes? He had an agreement with the FDIC, which is the federal banking uh, regulators here in the States, where he was only supposed to get all this money that I was telling you about if he agreed to work with families to keep them in their homes. Um, He systematically broke these rules, according to the FDIC's inspectors. Uh, But instead of punishing him in some way, he was allowed to enter into a uh, consent decree where he basically promised to do better next time. One of the things I was going to ask you, Aaron, I think I've heard you talk about the actual structure. I'm just going to take us back a little bit, but the structure of these deals, and it's not just Mnuchin, it's it's Tom Barrick, for example, Colin, I think what's he, Colony Capital. Um, and the way the foreclosed mortgages worked, the the ability to purchase them by these folks like Tom Barrick, um, was such that they were being sold en masse, like a thousand mortgages at once, making it basically impossible for the individual, to an individual family to come back and try to buy, obviously, um, and, and making it just ripe for big money, big capital to move in, because who can buy a thousand mortgages at one, at one time? The government was worried because they had so many foreclosures all across the country. Now, we were talking before about Steve Mnuchin, right? We failed to stop his foreclosures. We also failed to stop the foreclosures by all these other banks. And so by 2012, the country was awash in so many foreclosures, the government actually owned 200,000 houses. trying to figure out what to do with them. Should it uh, turn them over to nonprofits? Should it turn them over to cities? Uh, should it allow former homeowners the chance to, to buy homes again? All these things were suggested. Uh, what the Obama administration decided to do instead was exactly what you're talking about. They bundled the homes together uh, a thousand at a time, and then they opened the bidding. And they said, you know, it's a fair process because everyone has an equal opportunity to bid. Well, yeah, everyone has an equal opportunity to bid if they can afford to buy a thousand homes at a time. So they end up selling them at a really steep discount. Uh, Tom Barrick, uh, Donald Trump's very good friend, the head of Colony Capital, he gets one of the first deals buying about a thousand homes across Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and Phoenix for 30 cents on the dollar. and then he could turn around, uh, rent them out for high rents because prices never went down, and basically he's printing money. And that is the way all these companies looked at it. 2008, uh, we were told, oh, we can't afford to save people's homes. And the reason we couldn't afford it was because we made the homeowner feel the financial pain, and we gave the subsidy to people like Steve Mnuchin and Tom Barrick. One of the things that I find so interesting in the here and now is when I look at what happened in 08 and your book elucidates like really what happened on a personal level to so many individuals and families where you know their home foreclosed they maybe tried to buy it back themselves couldn't end up renting it end up paying a huge amount of rent way like 
absurd amounts of rent as these private equity firms uh, and asset management firms are squeezing more profit out of that parcel of land, that unit, as they call them. Uh, And then if we, so we take that human misery, we take the economics of that for everyday families who are just struggling to make ends meet, pay that rent. Fast forward to 2020, a pandemic and an economic crisis. And is it surprising then that there are 40 million people in the United States who could who could be facing eviction once the moratorium lifts, let's say, January 1st. Um, I mean, to me, there's such a direct line between what you describe as happening in the global financial crisis and thereafter and 2020. I feel like we have learned something, though. I feel like Mm. all of our efforts have not been in vain. Uh, The CARES Act, which is the law that was passed in March, that uh, allowed Uh, people with government-backed mortgages to go into forbearance, to basically put off their payments if they lost their job because of COVID. That did not exist in the 2008 crisis. Uh, There are eviction protections, starting with the CARES Act, going into the executive order uh, from the president uh, that expires at the end of the year, Uh, many local governments with eviction protections. Uh, If your landlord takes advantage of one of these government forbearance programs on their mortgage, they have to pass relief on to you, the tenant, uh, which is really hard to find out what your landlord's mortgage is. It's kind of a disaster if you're a tenant, but these protections did not exist in 2008. Yeah, we're in a much better situation with a bigger financial crisis. So that's good. Sure. But the protections are in place. I mean, my point was because people were living, are living such on the edge now, and they're living such on the edge in large part because they're paying astronomical rents, whereas wages stagnate or remain pretty stagnant. And so I mean, it's great, and I'm not trying to to say that these new measures um, put in place aren't amazing in light of what could have happened, um, but they're necessary because of the precarity that so many millions of Americans are living in across the whole country. And this is America 2020. Very sad story. Going back to New York City, Park Avenue, there is a building where some guys are living almost like in a commune. They are sharing in the spaces. Tell us about the, the Park Avenue gang. Yeah, one of the things that really struck me, well, this, this, my whole book, Homewreckers, started because I found this house in South Los Angeles um, that had been owned by this African-American family uh, for 50 years until they lost it to a predatory mortgage during the housing bubble in a foreclosure by Steve Mnuchin's bank. And I visited the house, and the tenant who was living there at the time, Sean Pruitt, was dying of cancer and AIDS and facing a rent increase by his corporate landlord. Uh, And as I tracked this one property, there had been five different members of Donald Trump's inner circle, Steve Mnuchin, Tom Barrick, Steve Schwartzman, the founder of Blackstone, Joseph Auding, who was Donald Trump's chief bank regulator, and Jamie Dimon, the head of the biggest bank in America, J.P. Morgan Chase. They had all personally profited off of this one 
family's pain. I couldn't believe it. Uh, and then I found another woman, Sandy Jolly, who's the main character of my book, who also lives in Southern California, had the same experience but fought back and won a whistleblower settlement. And when I started to background these profiteers, I realized that they all lived in the same small section of upper Manhattan. And four of the players in the book even lived in the same building uh, at 740 Park Avenue, which has been called the world's richest apartment building. And the stock market is doing fine. So if you have money, it's, it's golden days. But if you don't have money, you suffer more than ever. Yes, although in this case, you know, two-thirds of Americans are homeowners. And for most people like myself, we don't own stock, and our primary asset is our home. So this is a lifesaver for, um, for people like me. It's also a lifesaver for Blackstone and similar companies. Um, and so uh, the real question is, what happens, what happens if— the crisis goes on and the unemployment rate remains high. People like me lose their jobs, run out of their savings. We will be forced to sell. And then companies like Blackstone will be able to come in and buy. That's, I think, what people are concerned about. Schwartzman, quite early in the pandemic, said in an interview that Blackstone are sitting on 1.5 trillion dollars in dry powder and i think that's like you know the the dry powder we should probably get a bit scared when they say so they they are sitting on tons of money and they're just waiting to shop when it's it's good they're not going to buy now uh when uh, real estate prices are still stable uh they're going to buy when we are when we are suffering. So that's where you get into this dry powder. What they're doing now is marshalling their money. They're getting ready to buy big when we are feeling the most pain because, you know, buy low, sell high. Uh, but they're just waiting. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and this is the story that you can see in Push is also that Blackstone entered into the housing market in end of 2011, early 2012. And they are now the biggest landlord on the planet, but they started like four years after the big, the, the, the big crisis. So you're totally right. We should probably be aware now. And that's why it's a good thing for us is that there is some time to, to raise this issue and talk about it. Because, and that's why you are doing your book, Home Records, and we are doing uh, Push to Film and now the Pushback Talks. That we, I think we all need to know more and we, we need to get a better language to, to be able to fight back. Yeah, we do have time. We have some time because they're waiting for things to get bad and we have an opportunity for them not to get so bad. You know, the the CARES Act and the other protection measures that, uh, that they have passed, uh, Leilani is right, they don't really solve anything, but they buy us some time. But what we see now in Congress in the states, as, as everyone knows, is gridlock. And so they're not using the time to come up with permanent solutions, which is what we need. For me, this is scary because it means that politics can almost be the same. I mean, even if you different kind of figureheads on the top. How do you see that, Leilani? <laughs> I don't understand at all how... Um, all of this stuff plays out in the U.S., like campaign monies and et cetera. I, um, I, I would imagine that uh, it's good politics for Blackstone and others to be courting a variety of political actors. 
I mean, wouldn't wouldn't you do that if you were them? I would. These guys, the, the particular people that we're talking about, Steve Mnuchin, Tom Barrick, uh, Steve Schwartzman, uh, they are vulture capitalists, right? They want to buy the undervalued asset as cheap as possible and then sell it for a ton of money. That is their business. So in 2016, they saw a real opportunity um, in Donald Trump. But as you mentioned, you know, the Obama-Biden administration was not hostile to these interests at all. It was during that time that they were able to amass all this housing. And so, um, so I think that they're in kind of a win-win situation a little bit. I think this film and your book could be a, an important part of the debate in the U.S. I mean, the whole issue should be really high up. Or maybe it already is. How do you, how do you see that? I think that uh, everything is being eclipsed by our current uh, catastrophe. But when you ask people how are they doing, I mean, their ability to stay in their home, whether they're a homeowner or a tenant, is really top of the list. And people are in tremendous financial pain, and they know what happened in 2008, and they're worried that it will happen again. And uh, I was just looking at the numbers yesterday. There are three and a half million Americans right now who are in uh, forbearance on their mortgage, so they can't pay. Three and a half million. And they're able to do this legally because of the steps the government had taken. So this means that the next administration is going to come in and they're going to inherit all of these people who, who can't pay. And they're going to have to decide what is going to be the permanent solution to this. And so uh, having you know your film come out uh, in this moment where we're trying to decide what happens next um, – is really important. So we should wrap. Uh, thank you very much, Aaron Glantz, uh, writer of Homewreckers. You can find the, the book on Harper's. I wouldn't say go to Amazon because I prefer you go to the, the bookshop or the bookshops, your bookshop's internet store. Yeah, you the people can go to A Glantz, which is A G L A N T Z. Uh, dot com, uh, but it's it's you can also just find it by by Google, and I'm sure people can find your movie by Google. And I'm so happy uh, to see. I saw that the movie is opening uh, first in San Francisco, which is my hometown, uh, and I was just uh, I'll just tell all my friends to go see it. Uh, in the theater from their house. Uh, I've always felt that this film will resonate with Americans in a real way um, because of the, the, the suffering that's so directly related to housing in that country. And uh, anyway, I'm super excited to see how it's received in the good old US of A. Take care and, and thank you very much. See you soon again. Thanks so much, Aaron. And thanks so much, Frederick. Aaron Glantz. Good guy, isn't he? He is a good guy and he knows his stuff. One of the things I love about this episode is that it actually connects with the Sarah Chase episode on corruption and kleptocracy because Aaron is so clear in the linkages between all of these actors. I mean, they all end up living in one building or within a block of each other in New York. And that's what Sarah Chase talks about is those networks of relationships, um, that that's how corruption uh, and kleptocracy happens. Um, so I, I, I just love that little aspect of, of Aaron's uh, piece. Yeah, and that's actually two good books to read this summer. It's Home Records by Aaron Glantz and 
on corruption in America with by Sarah Chase and uh, Leilani, money, money, money. It's all about money, isn't it? It's all no. about money. <laughs> no. <laughs> But how do we Say fund this? So. How do we fund the podcast? <laughs> we don't. We don't make any money with this with this podcast. Is, is that a problem? Uh, no, it's not a problem. But we would love to have more patrons. Yeah. That's folks who give us just a small amount of money every month, so that we can keep going with this podcast. And to get there, what do you do, Frederick? How do you become a patron? You 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 go to your computer. You go to something called Patreon dot com. Then you look for pushback talks, and then you say, "Hey." Here's my credit card. I will, from now on, put two dollars a month going to the nice advocate and the nice filmmaker, and then, <laughs> <laughs> and then I will be their friends forever. That's like it's it's very easy and it's kind of it's a very good feeling when you yeah. get the, your credit card comp, card company will tell you, oh, you sent two dollars to pushback talks, and then you will feel oh. You will feel great. Exactly. It's such a such a nice feeling. We have a new tagline, I believe, Frederick. It could be an investment you can feel good about. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do some more taglines. But now I think it's time for a little bike ride to the sea. Mm. Oh, That's to the why. sea. No, I'll go to the river. To the river. <laughs> <laughs> See you, Leilani. Take care Bye, out there. Frederick. Be good. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To watch Push, visit pushthefilm.com. You can also support us by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next week.